0: Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. You can try to kill them, and they'll just get better. I'm your host, Ben Rathbone, and I'm recording from inside a hell dimension. Not here by choice. I was definitely kidnapped, so feel free to come save me anytime. I'm, you know, kind of just chilling here. We have a fun episode today about a character not super widely known, I didn't previously know much about her myself besides how she died and how she came back, which was wacky enough that I thought I'd make for a cool story. Was I right? You, gentle listener, can be the judge. What's your name, kid? The human spider. The human spider, that's it? That's the best you got? Yeah. Oh, that sucks. The sum of $3,000 will be paid to the terrified, the deadly, the amazing. The year is 1971. The largest anti-war demonstration to date takes place in Washington, D.C., when 500,000 participants show up to protest the Vietnam War. China returns to the international community as the U.S. ends its trade embargo. And Texas Instruments and Intel develop the first microprocessors, starting off the beginning chapters of 20th century digitization. All of this has... Very little to do with our first story, which stars a Tarzan ripoff that lives with a bunch of dinosaurs. It appears in Astonishing Astonishing Tales, Tales. featuring Featuring Khazar and Dr. 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 Doom, number 8. The Battle of New Britannia, by writers Roy Thomas and Gary Frederick, penciler Herb Trimpe, inker Tom Sutton, and letterer Artie Simic. High in the air, a solitary personal aircraft enters into view arriving from out of the snowy mist of Antarctica. In the plane is Barbara Morse and her fiancé, Paul Allen, who is piloting the vehicle. The place they now find themselves in is much different than the frozen tundra they've just exited, the first clue being the warm weather and clear blue skies, but a better indication than that is the screeching pterodactyl crashing through the right wing. Uh, Paul? What the fuck is that? No idea, but we gotta bail now. In the chaos, Barbara quickly dons a parachute and escapes, while Paul remains in the plane as it hurtles to the ground. Unbeknownst to them, one man and his faithful companion have watched all of this unfold. That's right, it's Khazar and his saber-toothed tiger partner Zabu, the Savage Land Welcoming Committee themselves. Seriously, though, every fucking time somebody comes to the Savage Land, this guy is here. Oh, hey, what's up, X-Men? I'm Kazar. Oh, hey, Avengers. Good to see you again. Let me catch you up on what's been happening in the Savage Land. How is he just always there? Makes you wonder how big the Savage quote-unquote land could really be. Is it, like, smaller than Epcot or something? Anyway, Khazar sees Barbara Land in a mysterious lake he's never been to. Like any true white man in a strange land he professes to be master of, Khazar figures that if he doesn't know anything about an area, then there's probably something wrong with it, so he refers to the place as the Lost Lake and wonders whether the parachuter can even be saved. The pilot, however, he decides he can definitely help. Khazar and Zabu arrive at the plane wreckage just in time to save Paul from a roving group of lizards who walk like men. After stabbing and biting enough of them, the last lizard flees, and in a moment I'm sure many pet owners will find relatable, Khazar has to remind Zabu not to chase it into the haunted swamp which created their kind. He then turns his attention to Paul, who explains that he came to this cursed land in search of Khazar, at the urging of his fiancée, who, by the way, you should really help me save. Khazar agrees and, with Zabu's help, begins tracking the woman. Meanwhile, in the Lost Lake, Barbara gets her bearings in the unfamiliar waters she's just been plunged into. Just as she's righted herself, a terrifying sight emerges from the water nearby, the fierce, elongated neck of a plesiosaur. A rider sits astride a saddle attached to the dino's head, and as he looks down on her from several feet above, he screams, Attack! Attack! Kill her! She must be destroyed! Before they can use her to perpetuate the race! More plesiosaur riders arrive, and Barbara frantically swims away, attempting to escape the mad dino riders. Before the pursuit can even rightfully begin, however, boulders begin to hurl downward at the aquatic dinosaurs. They're being launched from the talons of Archaeopteryxes, ridden by who the plesiosaur riders refer to as the British. One of the prehistoric birds swoops down to safely grasp Barbara and its talons, and the rider refers to their enemies as the Jerrys, which, if you're up on your early 20th century British slang, will give you a hint as to what's happening here. More Jerrys show up, these ones on pterodactyls, and a bizarre aerial dogfight commences. When the British ultimately claim victory, the writer who saved Barbara exclaims, The Germans are beaten! Now we return to New Britannia! Barbara, now on top of the Archaeopteryx, is staggering from everything she has to take in. Wait. Are all of you guys some kind of violent World War II reenactors or something? Reenactors? World War II is still very much a thing, and has been for 30 years. Bum, bum, bum. Once back on the island they've made their home, the leader of the British gives a more in depth explanation. He's smoking a pipe because, you know. You see, back in 1942, Their destroyer was in the South Atlantic Sea when it was attacked by a German U-boat. After the ensuing battle, both crews needed to escape their ships in smaller boats. The ocean currents then carried them away through a strange tunnel in Antarctica, into this lake in the Savage Land, where the British landed on the island, and the Germans on the shore. Once settled, the two groups of men carried on the war. Wow. Hey, so... I hate Nazis as much as the next gal, don't get me wrong. But there is something you should know. World War II ended, like, years ago, in 1945. Hitler's dead. An android named the Human Torch killed him. So you guys are kind of, uh, wasting your time. Hmm. Interesting information, thank you. But counterpoint, no, you're wrong. There's a war and we have to finish it, so check out this elaborate bamboo pipe system we built. It's going to pump lava into the lake and kill all the Germans' plesiosaurs, rendering their naval fleet obsolete. While Barbara futilely attempts to convince a bunch of men that she knows more about history and current events than them, Paul is attempting to ask Khazar just how exactly he knows the Lost Lake is dangerous. So, you've never been there. No. Which means it must be dangerous. I mean, ask anyone. Khazar and the Savage Land are pretty much synonymous. If there's somewhere I haven't been, it's gotta be dangerous. But is there a reason you never went there? I never went there because I don't know anything about it. Plus it's lost. I mean, right there in the name. The Lost Lake. Didn't you name it that? The argument I made up doesn't get the chance to go nowhere, as the two men and one saber-tooth tiger are attacked, this time by the man-apes. After quickly dispatching with the foes, Khazar and Zabu lead Paul into the lake. Two German plesiosaur riders watch nearby. Once out on the water, a mysterious being nearly capsizes the boat. Khazar wonders aloud whether this could be the end of the Savage Land. After all, he can't see what this dangerous foe is, so it could be anything. Next issue, To End In Flame. Yeah, I realize that issue didn't include much of our episode's character, and included nothing of what she would become. But that's kind of the fun part. Only in comic books can a mysterious woman with premonitions become a research scientist, and then a spy, then a superhero, then an alien in disguise, and then back to a spy-slash-superhero. As an aside, this issue of Strange Tales is probably most famous not for being one of Bobby Morse's first appearances, but for the Doctor Doom story that runs at the end of the comic. If I remember right, it's the first story to explain the motivation that led to Doom's rise in power, that he's trying to amass power to free his mother's soul from hell. Written by Jerry Conway and penciled by Gene Cullen, it's worth a look. I also included this story because I just like highly conceptual sci-fi fantasy plots like this. A bunch of English and German World War II soldiers wash up in a land outside of time and use dinosaurs to continue the fight for 30 years. It may seem like a stretch, but in the beginning of 1972, after this issue was published, A Japanese soldier from World War II is found in the jungles of Guam. Shoichi Yoikoi had been hiding there for 28 years, surviving in the wilderness with hand-carved tools ever since the US forces took Guam in 1944. So maybe not that much of a stretch after all. You know, besides the dinosaurs. Alright, our next story takes place in 1993. Let's cover what's happened to Barbara Morse in the 21 years we need to travel. Turns out it's actually Dr. Barbara Morse. The scientist was working on a project named Project Gladiator, sponsored by the international intelligence agency SHIELD. The project was supposed to recreate the super-soldier serum that created Captain America. S.H.I.E.L.D. suspected that fellow project scientist Paul Allen was actually a spy working for AIM, Advanced Idea Mechanics. So S.H.I.E.L.D. trained Morse to be a spy, and she engineered a relationship with Allen to discover the truth. Don't know if she was planning to take it so far as an engagement, but hey, these things happen, and she gets off the hook when Man-Thing kills him in Florida. Man-Thing is connected to the project in a way I don't have time to explain but I figure if you have the chance to say Man-Thing, you should take it. Project Gladiator produces one viable sample of Super soldier serum, which is taken by a villain named Victorious. Barbara, now going by the designation Agent 19, helps Khazar put an end to the Fiend's evil plans. Barbara, who we find out her friends call Bobby, briefly works as a freelance agent named Huntress before returning back to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. Bobby first appears as Mockingbird in Marvel Team-Up number 95, sporting her signature twin battle staves and wearing her trademark white and blue costume. This honestly should have been the first comic I covered on the episode, but, you know, dinosaurs. In the story, she teams up with Spider-Man to reveal conspiracy and massive corruption within the ranks of S.H.I.E.L.D. After this, Morse becomes a freelance agent again. She teams up with Clint Barton, Hawkeye, while investigating a corporation's evil plans to use an ultrasonic mind control device to force superheroes into fighting each other. The two costume heroes really hit it off, and get married barely a week after having met. This next part is a little complicated, so bear with me. During a battle with Kang the Conqueror, Mockingbird ends up trapped in the past during the American Wild West. You know, cowboy movie times. There, she meets a horse-riding costumed vigilante named The Phantom Rider, who believes her to be a goddess he's destined to mate with. He gives her a... (sighs) ...love potion, which causes her to lose her memories and fall in love with the man. None of this passes the vibe check for The Two-Gun Kid, another vigilante who sometimes works with Phantom, so he tracks down Bobby and the rider and manages to help break the potion's influence by dressing up as Hawkeye. Because... Two-gun kid met Hawkeye during a different time-traveling scenario. Now realizing what's been happening, Bobby is fucking pissed. She confronts the Phantom Rider on a mountain peak during a rainstorm, intending to beat the shit out of him. During the battle, the Rider nearly falls off a cliff, but manages to barely grip the edge. He tries to climb back up, but the surface is too slick from the rain, and he can't do it alone. Mockingbird stands over him, staring at him as he struggles. She does nothing, and watches him fall to his death. Soon after, Hawkeye and the rest of the West Coast Avengers arrive to take Mockingbird back to the present. Later on, Hawkeye finds out about Bobby letting Phantom Rider die, a fact that she'd kept secret from him and the rest of the Avengers. It leads to a huge argument, one that ultimately results in them separating, and Bobby requesting a divorce. She leaves the team, but eventually rejoins the Avengers in multiple different capacities, allowing the two former lovers to maintain a tenuous working relationship. During a period as a reserve member, Mockingbird is called in to battle Ultron alongside Hawkeye and other Avengers. During this time, the two reconcile their differences and become lovers once again. She soon rejoins the West Coast team as a full member. When an extra-dimensional being named Satanish, you know, like Satan, but not quite, Steals the four souls of infamous historical murderers from his rival devil Mephisto's realm, he reincarnates the evildoers into new bodies, names them the Lethal Legion, and promises them new lives if they can defeat the West Coast Avengers. He also throws a guy with a rope and hood named Hangman on the team for good measure. The Lethal Legion kidnap Mockingbird back to Satanus' realm, which brings us to Avengers Avengers West West Coast, number 100, Soul Gauntlet by writer Roy Thomas, penciller David Ross, inker Tom Dazon, letterer Steve Dutrow, and colorist Bob Sharon. We open to Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch, encanting a gibberish-sounding spell from the pages of a spellbook she has on loan from her teacher, Agatha Harkness. Surrounding her are the West Coast Avengers, namely Hawkeye, U.S. Agent, War Machine, and Spider-Woman. But not the Spider-Woman I did an episode on, This is a different one. She's got a black costume, and the webbing she creates is psychic, made from her mind. That'll be important later. Hawkeye is characteristically impatient, but since in this case his wife is trapped in a hell dimension, we'll give him a pass. Wanda's spell takes effect, and the group is transported to... well, no one is quite sure. Worse than the uncertainty, the magic spellbook flies off into the void carried away by some force that isn't explained, and Wanda isn't sure whether she can get them back to Earth without it. Worse out of the now three bad things, Mephisto shows up and yells at them for using his realm as a gateway to that knockoff Satanish's realm. He tells them that if they want safe passage, they'll have to make a deal. Once in Satanish's realm, they have to weaken the border enough so that Mephisto can burst through, curb-stomp Satanish, and take back the prized murderer souls that were stolen from him. Everyone groans and says no, we're not going to make a deal with you, you're like almost literally the devil. Except Hawkeye isn't so sure. I mean, nothing Mephisto said sounded terrible, considering it would help him get his wife back. Before he can say anything, however, the Scarlet Witch chants more gibberish and the Avengers are transported away, this time appearing in a bleak plain populated by eerie stone towers, shaped and arranged across the land in a labyrinthian pattern. Somewhere from the middle of the maze, they hear Mockingbird's voice calling out to them. Clint! All of you! You can't save me! Get out of here before he— Her words are interrupted by the big blobby horned green head of Satanish, who yells a bunch of evil shit at the Avengers before disappearing again. War Machine then flies off to perform reconnaissance, but runs into Zyklon, the spirit of Nazi Heimlich Himmler reincarnated into a guy wearing a flying green power suit that sprays poison gas everywhere. War Machine's armor has filters that protect him against the poison, but the villain does manage to distract War Machine long enough for the rest of the lethal Legion to show up. Hangman pulls Rhodes down to the ground, while Axe of Violence, who Hangman reminds us is the reincarnation of infamous axe murderer Lizzie Borden, and who of course has an axe as an arm, attempts to deliver the finishing blow, War Machine blasts her away with one of his repulsor blasts, and manages to keep the rest of the Legion at bay as well, save one. A not so widely known fact about Joseph Stalin is that before he became a revolutionary and then murderous dictator, he was a talented poet. In his new incarnation of Cold Steel, he proves he's still got it by yelling, Man of Iron, after this man of steel is done with you, you will curse the day you were born! The bulky metal man then leaps down from a tower and knocks War Machine out for the count. The armored hero appears next to Mockingbird, both restrained, their limbs embedded in a stone pillar. Back with the rest of the group, Hawkeye gets tired of waiting and shoots a hole through one of the stone structures making up the maze. U.S. Agent and Spider-Woman try jumping through one of the holes, but only Spider-Woman makes it through. U.S. Agent appears alongside Mockingbird and War Machine trapped in the same pillar. Hawkeye tries a new method and shoots a rope arrow so him and the Scarlet Witch can climb to the other side. But before they get there, it's Spider-Woman's turn to be ganged up on by the Lethal Legion. She fights valiantly, but in the end is outnumbered. Oh. Uh, hey guys, did you appear here after losing to the Legion too? Yep. 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 That leaves just Hawkeye and Scarlet Witch high above the ground, facing off against the Lethal Legion. But before the veteran teammates can do so much as fire an arrow or cast a hex, Hawkeye is overcome with an unbearable pain in his abdomen, his gut feeling like it's on fire. A stream of sinister magenta energy unfurls from the archer's mouth, and it forms none other than Mephisto. Apparently he doesn't need verbal consent, Hawkeye's weakness and will was enough for the being to stow away in Hawkeye's heart. Mephisto has a bone to pick with Satanish, but before making a move against his rival, he scoops up Hawkeye and Wanda and binds them into the same pillar as the rest of the Avengers. Because, well, he may not like Satanish, but he sees what the guy was going for and can appreciate a good aesthetic motif when he sees one, regardless of the source. The two towering devils commence combat. Satanish, by the way, has a big goofy face on his stomach to match the one on his head, if I haven't mentioned that. The Avengers are all helpless to do anything but watch, melded to the stone pillar as they are. That is, all except one. Spider-Woman conjures her psychic webbing, wrapping Mephisto and Satanish's legs together, tripping them up. The two fall over into the pillar, smashing it to pieces and freeing our heroes. The Lethal Legion leaps into action to take out the Avengers. But the numbers are now even. Additionally, the legions soon lose their powers, as they're cut off from Satanish's energy source, allowing the Avengers to quickly capture them. War Machine makes sure to get one last hit on Himmler, though, quote, "...on behalf of every non-Aryan on Earth." Which is great. What isn't great is that the energy leaking out from Mephisto in Satanish's battle threatens Earth, so the Scarlet Witch opens up a hole into Mephisto's plane, threatening to merge the two realms together, because I guess she can just do that. Refusing his dimension to be infected by Satanish's, quote, monumental mediocrity, Mephisto says, fine, fine, I'll leave, but I'm taking my four murderer souls with me. Satanish says, nuh and like two children pulling at a stuffed animal, they destroy all four souls, like, for good. Wanda then uses her hex powers to find the spellbook, and opens an aperture to Earth. She hurls her teammates through to the other side as Mephisto begins firing balls of fiery brimstone, demanding that six souls must replace the four he'd just lost. Five of the Avengers find themselves on Earthen soil, but Wanda is still trapped behind, having spent so much of her energy getting everyone else to safety. Dr. Barbara Bobby Morse, now known as Mockingbird, looks back at her teammate, floating nearly unconscious, at the mercy of the devil himself. Bobby is happy to be standing on grass again, underneath a real earth sky. But what does that mean if the woman who helped her get there is helpless, about to die? She looks at her husband, next to her, and says, I'm going back, and don't try to stop me. Hawkeye agrees. Who said I was gonna? But you're not going back in there without me. The two leap back through the portal and manage to throw Wanda out into Earth. As they attempt to escape themselves, however, a new flurry of brimstone fireballs rain down at them from Mephisto's mouth. Mockingbird manages to tackle Hawkeye out of the way, saving his life, and uses the momentum to dive towards the aperture back to Earth. The two make it just as the portal's mouth closes, but one fireball escapes out as well, and strikes Mockingbird in the back as the two fall to the ground in each other's arms. Bobby lets out a scream, and her visage of agony melts away into vacancy. The other Avengers stand around, shocked and speechless, as Hawkeye holds the body of his wife in his arms. You! You can't leave me, Bobby! Not after we just found each other again! You saved all of our lives! Bobby manages one last sentence before she goes. No. Clint, I did it to save you." The story ends at Bobby's grave, the West Coast Avengers all paying respects to their fallen comrade. As Hawkeye leaves a bouquet of flowers, we see the quote engraved on her gravestone, from Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Eternity was in her lips and eyes. I remember when I was a kid, I I used to read a bunch of random old comics from the early 90s and 80s, gathered up from comic book stores and these weird grab bags dollar stores used to sell. This issue was one of them. I remember having no previous knowledge of who Mockingbird was, but nonetheless, the panel where she's struck in the back by the fireball has stuck with me for years. It was legitimately shocking to me how sudden it was. This wasn't how these stories were supposed to go. Everyone was supposed to make it. They came to save her. How could she just die at the last moment? Anyway, reading it now, I'm not sure how well the storytelling has aged, if it was even that good in the first place. Roy Thomas isn't necessarily my favorite writer, but there's a lot of comics written by him, so it can be hard to avoid. I'm sure we'll be seeing him again. But that one panel, written by him and penciled by David Ross, is still with me. You are familiar with the thought experiment, the ship of Theseus, in the field of identity metaphysics. Naturally, the ship of Theseus is an artifact in the museum. Over time, its planks of wood rot and are replaced with new planks. When no original plank remains, is it still the ship of Theseus? Secondly. If those removed planks are restored and reassembled free of the rot, is that the ship of theses? Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. Well then we are agreed. The year is 2009. The latest Marvel Comics event is Secret Invasion, a story about the shape-changing aliens named the Scrolls attempting to conquer Earth by disguising themselves as superheroes. Like with all big events, Editorial wanted to use the story to push characters in new, interesting directions. One idea was to use the conceit behind Secret Invasion to give a character back something they'd lost. Editor and writer Jim McCann pushed for one character, or rather couple, in particular. He fought to bring back Mockingbird, since her and Hawkeye were, quote, like the Mr. and Mrs. Smith of the Marvel Universe. Brian Bendis agreed, and when Iron Man finds a ship full of humans abducted by the Scrolls in the last issue of the series, Mockingbird is amongst their number, apparently having been switched out for a Scroll imposter sometime before a supposed death at the hands of Mephisto. But while we see Hawkeye and Mockingbird reunite for the first time in well over a decade in publication, there are many questions that remain unanswered. How did she get on the ship? What has she been doing all these years? These questions are addressed... Or at least humored, in New Avengers, Avengers. The Reunion, Reunion. Number, three. number three Written by Jim McCann, drawn by David Lopez, inked by Alvaro Lopez, colored by Daniel Rodani and Marco Patroco, and lettered by Dave Lanfier. With two hours left until Mad Scientist Organization AIM detonates a dirty bomb, potentially killing millions, Bobby Morris and Clint Barton arrive undercover at the Al Palace in Zaragoza, Spain. At an event hosting leading scientists from around the world. The mission is to get in, defuse the bomb, and get out. But emotions are high, as just hours beforehand, Bobby dropped a different kind of bomb. She placed her abduction by the scrolls as right after a battle with Ultron, some time after asking Clint for a divorce, but before the two reconciled, meaning that in every sense that matters, the two never got back together. It was the scroll that Clint made up with. This made the car ride to the palace very awkward. Once inside, Bobby wants to focus on the mission, while Clint wants to keep talking about their relationship, which begins to really annoy her. Cut the pity party! They replaced me with a scroll programmed to believe to her core that she was me. No one could have seen that. Not even you. I did see you, though. In dreams, or out of the corner of my eye. In hell and on Earth. I've seen you every night since the day I lost you. When you were gone, did you ever see me? Everywhere," she says, cryptically. But there's one thing she doesn't see now. Scientists. Bobby recognizes one doctor she knew from her days at graduate school, but he's quickly shuffled away by mysterious men in suits. Morse and Barton give chase, but find themselves lost in an empty corridor of the palace. Clint has an idea. What if Ames's plan isn't to kill all the scientists? What if instead they want to abduct them? Upon hearing the word abduct, Bobby's mind goes to a faraway place in the past. She wakes up, years ago, in her bed inside the West Coast Avengers compound in California, with a splitting headache. Mockingbird wanders outside, where Hawkeye is cooking some burgers on the grill. When she says hi, he's eager to plant a kiss on her, but Bobby isn't in the mood. Head reeling, she walks away. When her friend Tigra comes over to check on her, Bobby has some questions. Is there anything off about his scent? What makes you think that? You knew why I was coming back. What Clint and I were going through. And now he's... changed. The last thing I remember, this sounds crazy, I know, but I swear I saw scrolls impersonating us. Me! Tigra assures Bobby that nothing is wrong, Clint just loves her. Later, while Mockingbird is trying to figure out what exactly is bothering her, Hawkeye sneaks up on her asking if she's finished with her homework and ready to play. When she tells him he nearly gave her a heart attack, he tells her, never, Bertie. That belongs to me. Clint begins to put the moves on Bobby, and is undeterred by Bobby's various reminders of their divorce, the man she killed, and her keeping this killing secret. He goes in for another kiss, but Bobby shakes him off, and as she hurries down a hallway, bumps into Tigra. Tigra tries to ask her what's wrong, but Bobby tells her friend she just needs to get away, and she continues walking. Something tells Bobby to stop partway down the hallway, however, and when she does she overhears Tigra and Hawkeye carry on a very suspicious conversation. Tigra accuses Hawkeye of pushing Bobby too hard, but Hawkeye doesn't want to hear it. All he has to do is bed the woman, and she'll tell him everything they need. He knows her better than she knows herself. Mockingbird interrupts this creepy tirade and knocks over both scrolls by throwing her twin staves at their heads. She then busts through the walls of the fake compound, finding herself on a strange alien planet. But Hawk Scroll isn't far behind and fires an arrow at her with a note that reads, Have fun. See you soon. Bobby survives in the scroll wilderness for months by building tools, hunting, and setting fires to keep warm. One day, a new arrow shows up with a new note. This one says, I'll always find you, lover. Mockingbird makes her way to a city and begins raiding homes and stores for food. A hooded cloak she wore in the wilderness to keep warm, she now wears to hide her human features. As years pass, legends of someone named the Robed Witch begin to spread. Children tell tales of a human woman who comes at night. One day, as Mockingbird is infiltrating a military base in hopes of retrieving information that will help her get home, Hawkscroll finally catches up with her and really doubles down on the stalker energy. I can see why he fell apart, the human Clint Barton, after he lost you. Don't you dare say his name. He really does love you, just like me. You are not Clint. You are not Clint. You are not Clint. Mockingbird repeats the phrase over and over as she attacks fake Hawkeye. She pins him to the ground and strangles the alien to death, tears in her eyes. Unfortunately, she doesn't see the other scroll behind her. Who knocks her unconscious. And then presumably places her on the ship with the other humans that the scrolls had replaced, that Iron Man finds in Secret Invasion number eight. I think. Anyway, back to the present, Bobby wakes up, going from looking down at a dead scroll hawkeye to looking up at the real deal. She realizes she fainted, and Clint helps her to her feet. They quickly fall back to form, Bobby wanting to focus on the mission, and Clint wanting to talk about their relationship. You see, there's something he can't shake. That scroll, Mockingbird may have been a scroll, but she thought she was really Bobby, and before she died she forgave Clint, said she didn't want the divorce. So if it was her, really her, human Bobby Morris who'd stayed, would the results have been different? Is it possible we could have worked it out? Bobby doesn't answer, because she's just spotted an explosive attached to the wall. Not the main bomb, but a Semtex that could bring down the roof. Then they both hear muffled cries for help down the corridor. Bobby runs to help, but before she can get very far, an explosion erupts in the hall, seemingly catching Clint in the blast. Bobby staggers amidst the rubble, calling his name, when a woman in a techno jumpsuit appears before her. She introduces herself as Monica Rappaccini, Scientist Supreme of AIM. I don't give a fuck who you are, Bobby says, pulling a gun out from underneath her dress. I only care that you're going to die. To be concluded. Basically, next issue, Bobby and Monica have a quick fight where the Scientist Supreme can teleport, but Bobby outsmarts and outmaneuvers her. Then, it turns out Clint wasn't killed in the explosion, and the two team up to beat up a bunch of goons and stop the bomb. Finally, the two decide to date again, and there's a big old splash page of them kissing. The end. Man. Reading this new Avengers Reunion series, I really get what McCann meant when he said that Hawkeye and Mockingbird were the Mr. and Mrs. Smith of the Marvel Universe. I don't even think that's a relatable reference anymore. It's been more than 15 years since that Brad and Angelina movie, and I honestly don't even remember what it was about except that they were married and shot a bunch of people. But even on that grounds, the comparison seems right, so let's go with it. Anyway, they break up again later. Bobby is still around, though, popping up here and there. In a full circle kind of development, she was injected with a version of the super soldier serum in order to save her life. So, yeah, she's a super soldier. She joins up with S.H.I.E.L.D. again, helps Silk look for her parents, dates Spider-Man, does science stuff with Hank Pym's daughter Nadia. She's around. All right, and that's going to wrap things up for this episode of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast and have some friends that you think might enjoy it also, let them know about it, and you can, of course, always leave a good review and rating wherever you listen to it, if applicable. I have a few more episodes I'm going to do this season, and then I'll be taking a break to prepare for season two in the fall, which I have hopefully cool plans for. Still working out all the details, but some of the characters you can look forward to at the end of this season are Supergirl, Professor Xavier, and the Scarlet Witch. Can't keep talking about her without giving her her own time, you know? All right, until then, keep it cool, folks.